Welcome to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast. Well, many thanks for joining us today at the Journal of Biophilic Design. We're really thrilled to be joined by Samita Singer. Um, she's an award-winning architect, academic, author, and passionate advocate of sustainable practice. She's founder of E-Architects for Change, the Equality Forum at Reba, uh, was chair of Women in Architecture, is founder of Ecologic Architects, um, a collaborative practice which uses agile and innovative ways of working. In fact, her practice-based research has resulted in four influential books and research papers on the subjects of sustainable design, community engagement, healthcare, and women in architecture. She's worked all over the world, which we're gonna talk about very shortly, um, in India and Spain and Middle East and France. Um, and her work's been featured in architecture journals, magazines, on grand designs, um, and won awards as well. Uh, the UIA UNESCO International Design Award, Women in Business Award at the House of Commons, um, and the AJ Atkin, Atkins Inspire Award for Architecture. Samita, many thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Vanessa, for having me. <laughs> um, well, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, sort of what you do and, and where you work? Okay, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question because people can't kind of pin me down. Is she an author? Is she an architect? Is she a charity person? You know, because I've kind of done everything and I don't think it's a bad thing to do everything. So I've, um, I'm, so as you said, I'm an architect, teacher and author. And um, recently I just received the OBE for services to architecture in the Queen's birthday honours. And it was a very interesting because the other people had very specific things in their citation, but mine was services to architecture. I don't think they could fit everything in that I do. <laughs> so, which was nice, you know, I think it's nice. Um, I've been a very active member of the RIBA, as you've said, and um, for over 25 years, and I was part of the ethics task group and Sustainable Development Commission of the RIBA. Um, and as you've mentioned, one of my things is about equity and equality. And I founded Architects for Change because when I came from India, I found, I, I thought it would be like wonderful, you know, women and men equal, but no, it wasn't. So I thought, okay, let's do something about this. Uh, instead of complaining. So this was something that came, um, uh, um, was founded and it's it's been going strong it's now 21 years old Great. and before that as you mentioned I was chair of women in architecture which is where I discovered a lot of problems that were happening and I need and I felt that we should all get together so there was women in architecture there was the students of architecture there was um, the black architect society um, so on and so forth so we I just thought it was no point you know, all these different groups campaigning. Uh, of course, they can campaign separately, but together we are stronger because basically what we're complaining about is discrimination. Yeah, absolutely. So there we are. And yeah. then I'm um, a non-exec director at Moorfields Eye Hospital NHS Trust. And that's been a very interesting experience working um, in the NHS and learning a lot, particularly through covid uh, for the last um, year and a half and um, you know as you said you know I'm trustee of various charities so I've got an insight into charity work and I founded my own charity Charushila 
and I've taught sustainable design for about 25 years and, and kind of tried to write kind of document. My writing is more about documenting what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So all my writing is different, represents different phases of my life. Okay. Well, obviously, um, sort of leading on from that, obviously you're founder of Ecologic Architects. Um, I think the sort of key is in the name, really. Um, I mean, I mean, which I love. I mean, can you tell us about the ethos behind the company? I mean, I know biophilic design is really key, you know, a key thing to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was made redundant and I decided to start Ecologic about, um, I don't know, uh, 30 years ago or something, mm. and just after finishing my part three. So it was, a, it was the time of the first recession. Uh, I had been working in conservation in Cambridge for a large practice, and then I'd moved to London. I was working for a, a small practice in conservation, and I'd learned a lot about um, you know, natural materials and, and all that sort of thing. But I, after I was made redundant, I thought, okay, that's it, take the plunge, you know, start your own thing. Um, and I had been the first woman to complete an MPhil in sustainable design at Cambridge. So it, you know, I did have the kind of the knowledge behind me. And so the ethos behind Ecologic was to provide an ecological angle to regular architectural service. And this was provided without any charge. So, you know, some people were like saying, oh, this is a specialist service. We're going to charge you extra for it. I just thought this should be part of design. And now you have this sort of so many years later, you have the green overlay um, to the RIBA part uh, work stages. And but I, I thought this should be natural. This should be part of what we do. Mm, well, I think it's, it's really lovely. And I, obviously we, we can talk about some of the projects that you've been involved in, but um, they're, I mean, they are, they're, they're using innovative materials and, and all sorts of things. Um, I mean, we can talk a little bit about the charity that you set up, uh, Charu Shilla, um, which I think is a beautiful name. I mean, you say it's from Sanskrit, uh, Charu meaning beautiful and Shilla Foundation. Um, obviously, you've worked in India and um, UK, Palestine and Venezuela. Obviously, there's so many, so many things we could talk about. But can you tell us a little bit about why you set that up? Um, yes. So um, when I started working as an architect, I realized that I had a really strong attachment to animals and plants and food security. Um, the environmental crisis wasn't as big as it's now. You know, people would say, oh, so what did you study at Cambridge? Oh, environmental design. Oh, what's that? You know, people didn't know. But I just felt that that's the way I wanted to go. But there was no kind of recognition for that kind of work. You couldn't do that sort of work as an architect. So I decided to set up a charity, um, Charushila, uh, which is actually my grandmother's name. And uh, it seemed quite apt to take it because it means beautiful foundations. So I just thought, oh, okay, I'm going to take that name. And my, my father always wanted to start a charity in her name anyway. So I thought it's all fitted very well. So with Charushila, how we work is we, we take our time to build relationships and the projects. So we often, you know, there's large time, uh, p- parts of time that we don't have any work because we wait to be approached sometimes. Sometimes we see an opening and then we start talking to the people. I think it's so important, this dialogue mm. to ha- have with people 
you know, and we work in a very fluid way. So we, we don't say, oh, you know, this is the design and you've got to do this. We say, okay, what, what are the problems that you have? How can we help you solve it? And then we work with the people to, and then we generate ideas. And, you know, sometimes I've drawn things and someone's come and say, oh, that's rubbish. We're going to do our own thing. Fine. Let's, you know, there's no ego in here. You know, it's what the people want to be, uh, want this to be done. So, um, you know, we just do it. And um, it's not intention to kind of plant stuff on people, you know, we just want to work with them because we know if people don't have a buy-in to the project, they won't look after it. Mm -hmm. So it's as simple as that. It's common sense approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the sort of the, the projects that you've done, the sort of urban regeneration, uh, community-based collaborative uh, projects. Um, and as I said to you before we spoke, I mean, there's so many things I could ask you about, um, but um, obviously I love India, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be sort of very self-centered and ask you about the project you did in in Ladakh uh, to start off with, please. The the Druk White Lotus School, which has got a lovely name anyway. So can you tell us about that, please? <laughs> yeah, so that was really interesting. So um, Ladakh is part of Western Tibet. Mm -hmm. um, but although it falls in India, it used to be part of this big kingdom called Tibet. Mm -hmm. So um, we, what we did was we did a workshop with local children and a lecture for the local charity. And um, for me, I've always worked with children. And one of the ethos of the charity is the futures. How do we work with children? So we, we work with children. It's very interesting, this particular school, because um, they only come uh, for six months of the year because the rest of the time they have to um, you know either be helping their parents and the places like you can't travel it's completely snowbound mm. so they they come in for six months do their studies then go back and then stay there with their parents and they come back in the summer so but what was happening was in this school they the school had been designed by a very big practice based in London and the kids, uh, they, and they had installed a solar panel there. And the kids were destroying this, you know, uh, they would throw stones at it. And I wondered what was going on because, um, you know, the, the, their culture, their religion is Buddhism and I'm a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. So I just couldn't put two and two together. And uh, when I spoke to the children and we did this workshop and we spoke about sustainable futures, I understood that they felt angry at the way the, the project had been planned. So they hadn't been consulted. And also some of the ideas behind it weren't particularly Buddhist. They were about transporting Western ideas to this very remote place and, and you know, constructing a school, which didn't kind of uh, fit in with the ethos or the architecture of the local area. So uh, they took out their anger on this solar panel, which is very expensive, particularly because everything has to be flown in by air. It's on a high plateau. It's, I think, 35,000 feet. So it was not very good, you know, to have, a, to have solar panels broken because also um, it relies on that for solar power for electricity. Mm -hmm. 
So, um, you know, it was just getting to understand what the kids wanted and then explaining to them about sustainability, about what solar power is mm. and what it does and, and um, you know, build on their aspirations for sustainable futures. So this, this workshop was very productive. So we had kids who actually um, were very anti the place you know they were being very anti but if you look at that uh, photo they're all smiling at them you know at the end of the event they were all like in it together and they understood the issue about sustainability particularly for the tibetan refugees living in that part of Ladakh. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and as you say you know finding out using using like oh so why are they attacking this and using that as a as a vehicle to find out what this what this what the problem is and then find a solution you know i think and absolutely yeah, yeah. It, really yeah yeah um and, and i also know, did yeah sorry i was gonna yeah, say sorry, to yeah, you. yeah no and yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and I, I did a, a, a lecture and a little workshop with uh, people uh, that work with these kids as well, and of uh, Western architects and um, charity workers who come to work in Ladakh. I mean, there's a um, charity set up there already. So we did a lecture for them to, again, reinforce this idea that you can't impose solutions on people. It has to come up from within them. Yeah, absolutely. Because they mean they mean well, but as you say, if they haven't really thought it through, or you know, there's always another way, isn't there? Really, and 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 you know, as you people talking to people on the ground, and it's who they're going to who are actually going to work. You know, is going to be using the space. Um, I think it's really important. Um, obviously, you've worked in Palestine as well. Um, maybe you could tell us about about that project. Yeah. So that um, that project uh, was. Uh, again, we work with local people, local government and artists and and then university. I think that kind of formula works very well. Mm. So we did uh, rep workshops in refugee camps in Ramallah in the West Bank. And, um, you know, I've, I've been there like three times now. And um, it's 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 a very beautiful part of the world. But the people are living in appalling conditions in there mm -hmm. and um it's that kind of helplessness which is that you know they want to live differently but the political system around there is very difficult and you know and also i think the lack of public health education is um you know there is a lack of health education there so you know in my nhs work i think prevention is better than cure so because um, it's part of, uh, you know, their religion, they don't drink alcohol, but instead what they do is drink a lot of um, fizzy drinks and sugary drinks. So um, I, when I discovered that, I, um, and, and there's no recycling. Okay. So everything is, uh, yeah, there was a plant, but apparently it didn't kind of work or something happened, funding was withdrawn. So it's a very difficult political situation to work in. So um, what we did was uh, we cleared two pieces of land there. It was uh, quite a horrible task because the bigger piece of land had not been cleared for ages. It was like stinking. So people had just chucked bottles and, God knows what else, we found a dead dog in there and... 
it was that we were just working our hands that were cut and raw and um and then i think we'd got nearly to the end when someone took pity on us and got those you know the claws that sort of pull it rubbish yeah so they got that it was like um in in it was um a piece of land that was a bit sunken so i think it was a one story height difference between the street level and the ground level so it was very helpful to have that those um mechanical help to get rid of the last bit of rubbish um, so with these kids, when I discovered about the busy drinks, I asked them to bring um, some bottles of, uh, you know, clean bottles, empty bottles. And I was shocked to see that each child had brought a bin bag full of these bottles. So in a week's time, they had consumed at least, I don't know, I don't know, I can't even, you know, if you imagine a black bin bag full yeah. of empty plastic bottles so that's what they brought and uh, I was just shocked at the amount of um, bottles they had collected and how bad it was for their health I'd been to um, the St John's Eye Hospital and I'd seen firsthand the impact of having unhealthy food and drinks on people's eyes because that's the first place it shows up. So there were lots of people with diabetic retinopathy, which um, is um, where you get uh, diabetes, then that affects your eyes. Mm -hmm. And um, there were small children with wearing glasses. So I think just from that little action of, uh, you know, filling a sack with um, plastic bottles, mm -hmm. I sort of said, do you think this is a reasonable amount of you know drink to have during the week and they were all giggling at first and you know then they came around to the idea that maybe it wasn't a good thing to do and um and then we decided to use the bottles to make little we made planters we made shades we made little containers we did all sorts of things with it because we didn't have any ways of recycling it there so that was one thing. And I did this in two, work two workshops, both for refugee children. One was a smaller group of children. The other one were like um, teenage kids. Um, so when uh, we decided to create the garden, we also decided to use waste materials because getting um, building materials in Venezuela is, is very difficult. Sorry, not Venezuela. <laughs> Uh, well, it is difficult in Venezuela as well, but Palestine, uh, e you know, even more so. Mm. So we uh, used tires, which they had lots of tires, and we used uh, we had a tiny amount of um, uh, cement, and we had lots of sand, and uh, <laughs> and so we created seating out of tires. We created planters out of tires and somebody donated plants to us that were going to be thrown out. And the idea was to actually um, plant things that didn't need much watering. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we created two public spaces using those materials. And after we'd done that, um, the local council said, okay, this is an area of interest, tourist interest. <laughs> so I was featured in their local papers. I got an award, which was very sweet of them. Um, but the best thing was what happened after we left, which was the various charities and the students that we'd worked with, they took off on their own. And they then um, created lots more, about more than 100 small gardens. They tidied up school gardens and did their own work. 
And I can't take any credit for that because, you know, they, it was their work. That's lovely. That's really nice. You've inspired people. They've seen it. They've, they've learned how it can be done and they've gone off and doing it. And that's just lovely. That's really lovely. That's like a, like a snowball, isn't it? You know, a snowball of yeah. positivity. Um, that's wonderful. And, and the award was well-deserved as all, all your awards are. I mean, I, I really think so. Um, just going to talk about sustainability. I mean, obviously you talk about there about recycling materials and stuff, but obviously the sustainability element is really important. You've worked in the community centre in Acton um, and you used a thing called solar pipes, um, S-O-L-A pipes. Um, can you describe what these are I mean, and what the benefits are? Obviously from a biophilic you know, design point of view, we sort of love the concept, you know, moving away from so much artificial light or you know, unnatural light to natural light. Yeah, so they, they were quite new when I started using them. So no one had heard of them and the, the council, the building control would come and say, what are these, you know, how do they, but they could see what benefits they had. So basically the idea is very simple. It's very, these are aluminium um, and steel um, pipes about this large and very highly polished the inside is extremely highly polished. So when light falls on it, um, it's, it reflects and bounce, bounces off. And then at the bottom, you would have a, uh, basically like a, you know, you'd see those um, light uh, bulbs, you know, the cover. Oh yeah. Which would be about that big, yeah. yeah. And so all it is, is bringing reflected sunlight inside the building. So you can, you can use it in um, very places where it's difficult to get lights in. Mm -hmm. You can use it in places where there is, um, um, you know, you, there's a need for security. And you can use it in places where you can't really access it. So there, because there's no main maintenance problems with this. So what you, you just install it and basically forget about it. So, in this community center, there were areas that needed natural light. And uh, so there were some um, areas on the stairwell and it's, it's a listed building. And so you can't do much with installing big windows and things. So we use the solar pipes on the main staircase. We used them in some of the to bathrooms and toilets that wasn't illuminated at all or didn't have um, natural light. Uh, and I've used them in residential projects as well. Mm -hmm. So it's just, uh, you know, I, I just, I thought there was, there was such great uh, piece, uh, things to work with. So simple, such a simple idea yeah. and works so effectively. Yeah, really, really good. As I said, you know, people who are listening um, on the podcast, I, you know, go on to the Journal of Biophilic Design.com uh, website and you'll be able to see the video on there. And also on YouTube, if you look up the uh, Journal of Biophilic Design, so you'll be able to see these solar pipes as well and, and, and see... Uh, um, see how you're demonstrating them. Um, so the, a project, another project you worked on, so sort of, again, sort of picking up on the whole sustainability thing was, um, was one that you was featured in the Green Building Exhibition uh, at the Bristol Architecture Centre. Um, yes. It was about where you installed a passive ventilation and heating systems in sort of residential refurbishment and, and extension in West London. I mean, can you describe the projects and maybe what the brief was and also I mean obviously some of our listeners may know what a passive system is but as soon as you're you're here <laughs> I, I would I, I want to know properly as well so if you don't mind explaining what a what a passive system is and why it's good for the you know the, the environment and obviously it's biophilic too so um yeah <laughs> yes so um 
the passive system is a system that doesn't need mechanical or electrical or any other kind of uh, input into it. It works by itself. So although you say passive, it's not passive in that sense. It's it's still effective and useful. It's like, um, I think if you compare it to yin and yang, passive is the yin <laughs> of energy systems. So I like, I like that uh, method because you know, there is nothing to, um, you know, there's no uh, mechanical tools or machines or electricity that's needed. You know, it's a bit like this um, solar pipe, you know, you don't need to do anything afterwards, but it's still giving you that light. And I just think that if we can do heating and lighting in a passive way, then that's wonderful. There's, there aren't that many things to go wrong. Uh, this is also complete house refurbishment, which was completely the early 200s, 2000s. And it was nominated for various awards and featured in the AJ small projects and also at the Green Building Exhibition at the Architect Architecture Centre in Bristol. So the project was a complete refurbishment of a house in West London. Mm -hmm. And the owners wanted a modern feel despite the location of the property, which was in a conservation area. Mm -hmm. So they also wanted to extend upwards and created uh, and wanted to a rooftop space because they didn't have the access to the garden on the ground floor, which belonged to someone else. So the project became not only about creating this roof garden, but also how the design could induce natural ventilation in the property, which is where passive ventilation came, comes in because it doesn't require any mechanical or electrical input into it. Mm -hmm. So uh, also with the project, we used um, natural materials such as cedar wood decking, both on the inside and outside. Um, it doesn't require too much treatment um, because cedar actually treats itself in a way. Uh, we used coal. Yeah, yeah. yeah cedar is very, very good. That's why it's a bit more expensive than other woods, but it produces its own oils, you know, cedar wood oil. Yeah. So it kind of has its own beauty treatment shall we say <laughs> yeah but you have to you have to treat them you can further heat treat it to uh, and that makes it a darker color but there are lots of old houses in north america and other places which are made of cedar and they're still fine nothing wrong with them and also nowadays you can find they're being treated for fire because of fire hazards but uh, you know this is a very very good wood to work with um, so we use it on the inside and outside we use copper cladding which changes color as it weathers and produces an architectural history an architectural memory of the building so it started it starts like really uh, kind of that lovely copper color and over the years it will get patinated um, so bri bricks were all reclaimed bricks that we used and um, we had the angel mark doors on that project so at that point in the uk there was not that many sort of eco certified uh, patio doors but i wanted to use those and uh, so we had to get these from germany um, but you know they were really beautifully uh, made they're made of maranti wood which itself is a sustainable wood and also the whole process um, is sustainably um, it's manufactured sustainably Mm. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of the beautiful um, 
uh, installation that you've done. I mean, you created all these different elements. I mean, I didn't know that about Cedarwood, for instance. So again, I'll put on the journalofbiophilicdesign.com website um, links, if that's okay, to the projects that you've done and also some images so people can look and, and sort of learn more and, and be inspired by, by what you've done. Um, I mean, sort of on, on again on that note. Um, I mean, you're you're a woman. You're a sort of trailblazing woman in architecture. You've, you're creating these amazing things, as you said. You know, you're the first woman to, um, you know, in Cambridge to get the M MPhil. Um, so, I mean, that's just you know. I mean, and you've gone on to inspire, well, hundreds and thousands of people because really you're. You, through the education projects that you do and also you're teaching online now as well and everything um i, I mean i think it's lovely i mean I, I, so woman in architecture i have we have to talk about that because obviously that's really close to your heart and you've you spearheaded um change and inspired collaboration and um and sort of mutual support as well um, I, I did. I sort of mentioned just in, just before we spoke that I used to work in the architecture library at the Bartlett School at UCL when I was doing my PhD, and um, and I loved it. With some women architects used to come, sort of budding architects, and they had like these brilliant ideas, and we'd sort of like chat and, and sketch because you know, I draw as well, and we just we just have some fun. I mean, I'm not an architect, but I just loved. I was I was really inspired by their the creativity. Um, but um, I mean, are you seeing more women come into the profession now? Are they are they sort of also coming up with like sort of more biophilic design ideas, or is it? I mean, sort of what's what's the sort of status, as it were, like a snapshot of, of women in architecture right now? Yeah, so the I mean, I have to say that it's so far been a bit disappointing to looking at the numbers. Mm. So what's happening is when I was chair of women in architecture, there were just eight percent women architects and now it's 28 percent. So it's grown by 1% each year, which is quite disappointing because I think it will take another 22 years to achieve um, equality 50-50. Mm. So, you know, you, you just think, you know, there's been so many social movements, you know, there's been the Me Too movement, there's been um, Black Lives Matter movement, the climate movement, et cetera. So what's, what's going on here? And particularly if you think the, the equality, the Equal Pay Act came through in 1975, I think. And um, you know, it's a long time, you know, it's a whole, you know, people who were born in 1975, you know, they're architects now yeah. and things haven't changed for them. So just think what's going on here. You're a woman, a woman of color. If you're a woman, you have women with disabilities, you, you have women who's of a different uh, gender, you know, these kind of things just, um, you know, increase uh, the amount of discrimination that you face. So it depends on how many things you tie on. So if you're a woman, woman of color, disabled, you know, all yeah. these things then bring, bring double or triple discrimination against you. Mm -hmm. And I think in the, these days, it's it's not right to have the, this amount of discrimination. So, um, the women, a lot of women drop out during the course. So as you know, the course is part one, three years, then a year out of work, then two years of study, mm -hmm. and then a year out at work, and then you do your part three. So you can take about nine years to complete the course. And women who might have started um, age 21 at the university are now getting to the age when they want to have children. So if they take a break to have a child then it means they're you know they have difficulties getting back into the profession mm. 
So, you know, it's, it's still, it's still not right. I, you know, I think the government can do so much more in supporting women in STEM subjects. Mm -hmm. You know, these are difficult areas for women to progress and, um, you know, the government can support them more by, because architect, architecture practices, 80% uh, of them are small practices. You know, to be fair, maybe they struggle as well. You know, they think, oh, okay, it's the woman. She's just about to have a child. Okay, we'll make her redundant. I've heard so many stories like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not saying all small practices are like that and things have improved, but it's it's very tempting. I know, for example, in during COVID, more women got made redundant than men. And women also took on a lot more of the homeschooling for children at home. They did a lot more of the housework, plus they were working online. So, you know, all the time women get it um, <laughs> in the wrong way, you know. So, um, and, and I know women architects struggled a lot. There was a, some kind of survey done and, you know, all the women that were spoken to, they said, we really struggled. You know, you're speaking to a client, say, you know, a high-flying client on a building project, and then you've got kids running around. <laughs> They're trying to sort out their homework or dinner or something. Uh, it's been really difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, keeping that in mind, I'm actually now going to be starting a new course in, in Milan, which is about women in architecture. It's going to be the first course of, the, of its kind. And it's, um, it, it, the course is linked with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. So it will cover all the aspects of gender equality, reducing equality, climate action, sustainable cities, communities and uh, ecological issues. So that's four or five, six of the sustainable development goals that it will cover, the course will cover. So, uh, you know, coming back to where we started from, basically women are really tied in with the environment. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think as well, we have, um, was, you, know, sort of, you know, I can't remember who I interviewed, but somebody, it was, it was, a, it was a bloke. And, um, but they mentioned that, um, which, was, which was really interesting to hear him say, because he said, you know, that sort of the, the biophilic, biophilia aspects, he just mentioned that it, there's a feminine aspect to it, um, which I suppose which is traditionally, you know, workplaces, they would perceive plants and stuff as the fluffy stuff. So therefore it is the women's sort of side of things. And um, and there is, a, there's a softer element, obviously, to rather than working in a harsh environment, which is like reflective and, and sort of, you know, traditionally perceived as masculine, um, you know, creating something that's more harmonious, you know, more harmonious with nature and, and with, you know, our sort of our biological and psychologically, um, you know, sort of happy place is more maybe it's a more maternal kind of way more kind of holistic more caring more, mm. which mm. traditionally been a, a woman's role um if you want but um you know maybe that that could be a call to women to come you know to come into architecture through biophilic design maybe they've come in through it through, through interior design um and maybe they've kind of got involved a little bit more in sort of architectural design and you know maybe they could go and train you know so that would be a nice I'd be a nice way in, you know, anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, like, you know, the, the fact that there are lots of like women interior designers or women gardeners comes from the fact that, you know, when, when the professions began, before they began, women were confined to their homes and gardens. And that was an area they had complete control on. So they started doing that. So in a way, it's an extension of that. But mm -hmm. we know that women can do so much more. You know, there's women building the shard and 
bridges and really big engineering projects um, they're involved in. So women can do both things. But, you know, I have to say that this biophilic idea of this being the soft and fluffy stuff, you know, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be about um, your being a woman. You know, men can have that too. Mm-hmm. And and it's good to have both aspects, isn't it? The yin and the yang. Yeah. So the yin isn't about just you know if you're a woman you naturally think in that way, no. or if you're a man you think in that way. I think it's about having both aspects in your design work. Totally, absolutely, yeah. Well, sort of um, on on that note, um, if you could paint the world with like this sort of magic brush of biophilia um it's a question i ask everybody at the end of um, a podcast so it's a kind of like real fantasy magic question but you know what would what would the world look like to you so i would say to all the children and all the future inhabitants of this world is that you are one with with nature you know it's not you and this is not a binary thing that you and nature are separate things it's the oneness of you and nature and this is actually a Buddhist philosophy. So you can't exist without your, without your environment. The environment can't actually flourish without you helping it flourish. So there's a two-way relationship with them. So please always be mindful of that. Thank you for listening to the Journal of Biophilic Design podcast.